Hello, patrons. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a little while. I mean, not for you. You've had the arduous task of listening to us weekly, but we've been away for three weeks. We haven't recorded in that period. Uh, and uh, I, for one, am back and refreshed. Refreshed, guys? George, Phil? Yeah, yeah so ready to go. I've had so much time on a beach in a tropical paradise, <laughs> sending photos to everybody on Instagram about how great it was. It's been wonderful here. Coldest April in like 60 years, just as uh, the lockdown is easing up. So it's been fantastic. I feel really refreshed. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's rainy fascist island. Uh, so we're doing a three articles um, where, uh, well, you know the score by now. It's we each talk about one article and we discuss it. Um, it's a way of us to, to, for us to discuss current affairs, which we're going to do. Um, but we're going to do something even a little bit more current uh, right at the start, because today there's the uh, very exciting event of regional uh, local elections in the UK. Um, is there anything interesting actually happening? Is there anything to pull out? Sometimes it can be an interesting bellwether for where politics is going. Yeah. So in London, where where I live, our nation's capital, we have um, a Corbyn a Corbynite option, but it's not Jeremy, it's Piers. So we have uh, we have a a new and improved Corbynism or a degenerated his, his brother, Jeremy Corbyn's it's, brother. Yeah, so it's like um, first as as tragedy, then as as farce, or 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 new and improved, depending well, on. He, on he's your not standing though, is he? Um, I think he might be actually. Wait, wait, wait. You started talking about someone for our listeners. You, yeah, before you started mentioning him. I think so. so just for the, just for the benefit this. of maybe for the benefit of our listeners, George has been trying to make his way to Piers Corbin for the last, I don't know, year and somehow has just not managed to find him. So he's been trying to attend like increasingly large anti-lockdown protests. There were 40,000 people in London at the last anti-lockdown protest. And, you know, that's a kind of a conservative estimate. And yet somehow George still managed to miss it, despite his constant protestations here to you listeners that he is opposed to lockdown. So but for some reason, he cannot meet up with Piers Corbyn who's um, apparently the leader of the anti-lockdown protests, notorious yeah. for being so, a bit of a crank, unfortunately. Well, <laughs> I was going to say something unfair there uh, from our resident crank expert, also <laughs> our resident crank, maybe. Um, but no, he's let, let London live, really trips off the uh, off the tongue. Um, no, he is standing. Good I, was, I was right. Um, in, you didn't in say he was. Election. You didn't know, but I'm glad oh, to hear. Okay, that so he so standing. something that's actually did, I did know. But I just what, guess, what is he standing myself. for? Tell tell us the information. We need to like wind back a little bit. Pretend you're restarting and just tell us who is Pete yeah. Corbin. What's he standing for? What post, etc. Yeah, pretend pretending that I prepared for this for this uh, for this topic, <laughs> but I have I have read all three articles. Um, no, end all lockdowns. Spend more on serious illnesses. No vaccine passports. Uh, defend lo- council housing and end homelessness. And stop the extension of the ultra low emission zone. So he has some real must have policies there. Not nice to have, but must have. Um, and what's yeah. he standing for? So that's what he's standing for. And what, what's he where, standing for? Yes. He wants to let London live. No, no, he's no, 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 no. You have to run, no, elections, the way elections work, you have to normally run your candidate yourself for a certain post, a certain position. And so it's not just for president all the time. Sometimes you run for mayor or for other <laughs> positions. So why don't you tell us what he's running for? Sorry, I said in the London mayor election. So okay. I thought that okay. was kind of, it, that implied that he was standing for London mayor, but clearly I didn't, um, I didn't clarify that. But uh, yes, he is a, a mayoral candidate in London. So he's standing for the mayor of 
London. Okay. Thank you for is that, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. Should I, should I break that down a little bit? Sorry, that's probably a bit too jargon, <laughs> jargon filled. Um, but I think our listeners. Why are you can... going to vote for him? Or are you going to vote for Lawrence Fox, the former husband of Billy Piper? And really? Was he the, scourge. Was he the, is he the former husband of Billy Piper? Everybody knows that, Alec. Um, I didn't, George. I didn't know that. I thought that yes. was Chris Evans. Um, him too, but... both of them. She's no, been I. The block. That's no, that's just having two husbands. There's, you know, some people have have more. You can hey have man, many it's a like. new world. Liberal cosmopolitanism is over now. It's back to faith and family and like you know long term relationships and all that stuff. So anyway, we're getting super sidetracked here. What is the what Alex? What was your initial well, question? Okay, so why don't you tell us what is happening in local elections across the country? Don't don't summarize everything. But are there any races? Yeah, well, I mean, interesting. You know, what's happening in the London elections? Who's likely to win? Is no, it it's actually not worth? There, no, okay, it's fine. not. The only element of the council, so there's municipal elections, council elections, there's some police commissioners, there's a few mayoralties, um, including Bristol, I think, the kind of um, Western hipsterville that uh, the Tories are kind of, sorry, Labour Party is eyeing up. Um, and the main, I mean, the main thing about the council elections is that Labour is predicted to do very badly in many working class areas. So it's a continuation of the erosion of Labour base by the extension of Tory support, and there might be a shift in continuing shift in British political geography, which is to say a shift in the centre of Labour's electoral gravity to the southwest and the south. Um, tradition. Yeah, there's a was liberal there's a place Tory. called there's a place called Hartlepool that um, Guardian yeah, journalists that's have a just by-election. have um, have just discovered, and this so there's this this by election which is also happening to at Parliament, the same time. Right? So it's uh, to yeah. Parliament rather than to the council. And people from Hartlepool, don't know if you knew this, are called monkey hangers because um, uh, during the Napoleonic War, a ship apparently shipwrecked off the coast of Hartlepool and they uh, they hanged the uh, survivors, which included a, a monkey on suspicion of being a, a French spy. So they don't suffer fools gladly. Typical. Uh, that that's the, the typical Northeast. kind of um, the typical kind of stereotypes of the working class that are being propagated by cosmopolitan, metropolitan, liberal elitists. You're saying they're ignorant and xenophobic, that they're anti-French, that they don't know the difference between monkeys and men. No, I'm just saying they don't. You know, they're not all. You know, Green Party animal rights uh, nuts. They, you know, they have a sense of. So Hartlepool, right and wrong. Anyway. Hartlepool is a test case because, again, as with some of the council elections, the question in that is whether the Tories are ahead in the polls. Um, the Labour Party parachuted in a total moron to um, whose name escapes me now um, to stand in the election. And it looks as if it will, again, consolidate um, the Tories' erosion of the so-called Red Wall constituencies, which were the Northern and Midlands constituencies, which used to belong to the Labour Party and are now being um, taken over, annexed by the Tories. So, I mean, neither, I mean, I didn't, I'm not voting in the council elections. Um, the question, the main question is the shift in Britain's political geography. And it looks like it will consolidate the trends that were already underway, which is the Tory party becoming a more working class, a more Northern party, and the Labour party becoming a more middle class party of the South and the university towns. 
Right. Um, cool. Uh, that's to look out for, I guess. Uh, I'll let the results will be out, I guess, in the next couple of days. Um, Actually, we, we should we, have said there is also at the same time, there's the elections in Scotland and Wales. We shouldn't forget the um, we shouldn't be kind of um, centralizing nationalists to um, forget the Celtic fringe. So there's um, devolved elections to the devolved parliaments in Scotland and Wales. Um, and the Scottish National Party are expected to clean up, which has been taken as a de facto, that if they win, it'll be taken as a, a strongly, it'll be taken as a de facto endorsement of another referendum on independence, which means yeah, that Britain will be facing another significant referendum um, in the, if they win in the next few years, another kind of existential question of the integrity of the British state and the union. Um, so much more to look forward to. We should also turn to another country uh, riven by by regionalism, actually, because Spain had its regional elections on the 4th of May, um, which are pretty consequential. I mean, there was a regional election specifically in Madrid, um, in the Madrid region, not just which includes, but isn't exclusive to, the, to Madrid city. Um, and what was interesting about it was that Pablo Iglesias, the leader of Podemos, the sort of left populist uh, party, which has risen over the past decade in Spain, uh, quit uh, his job to then to run specifically for for uh, president of the Madrid region um, and failed. I mean, the headline is that the left was crushed. More specifically, it was PSOE, the, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, but which is really the kind of neoliberal center-left, um, lost, uh, were 11 points down. Uh, they lost the, the control of the uh, Madrid region. Um, and the kind of further left parties, Podemos and one called Mas Madrid, um, got like two points each. So, you know, not a terrible uh, performance for the kind of the, for the radical left, but the the reality is that given how much Podemos has staked on winning uh, the Madrid region, uh, it's a defeat for them. Um, and the big winners and a personal defeat for Iglesias and a personal defeat for Iglesias, um, which kind of marks his an end of a kind of well, I guess a, a decade in politics for him. I mean, he's out of kind of frontline politics now, um, so that's a kind of big deal in terms of where that left populist experiment was. I mean, we have covered this a lot, obviously, um, and that's a kind of a moment um, in terms of Spain. Um, but I want to highlight a couple of other things, but also, guys, you know, feel free to jump in with anything um, as I go through this. Um, like, so the big winners were, were was the Partido Popular, the, the main kind of traditional center-right party. What's interesting is that they seem to have gained a huge amount from uh, an outfit called Ciudadanos or Citizens, um, which were a kind of, there were an, they rose around the same time as Podemos as a kind of, you know, new populist outfit, but were an explicitly liberal party. So they were a kind of yuppie populism, I guess you could call it. And they were crushed. They lost, they lost, they, they were 16 points down. They won not a single seat um, in the elections. And so w- what seemed to be a kind of insurgency on the center right against the Partido Popular has now ended because this was kind of like young hipper people who voted for the, the right or the center right decided we wanted like a kind of less corrupt, less traditionalist outfit um, who now have gone back to uh, to the kind of traditional center right. Um, this traditional center right itself has kind of been moving further rightwards kind of under the pressure from, from Vox, which is a far right party, which has emerged. Um, so there seems to be a kind of a, a shift there and in some ways, maybe you could say a kind of end of a populist moment in the way that the the kind of traditional right has hoovered up that populist energy, has moved further rightwards, especially on social issues, um, while populist experiments of the liberal center and of the left have uh, have waned or been completely destroyed. 
So it's quite interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it is. I mean, we've been tracking the decline of Podemos um, in tandem with Corbynism and Syriza. I mean, those have been the three kind of main standout, I think, um, left populist kind of political insurgencies on the left, either within established parties or against them in Western Europe, in the European Union over the last um, 10 years or so. And all of them have um, waned at different rates and at different moments. I mean, I think um, Podemos's attempt to kind of um, collaborate with um with the socialists in Spanish government was also kind of a mark of their decline over time. Um, but it is a personal kind of defeat and humiliation, well-deserved as well for Iglesias. Tedious academic windbag trying to impose all those kind of pointless post-Marxist, pseudo-post-modern post-structuralist theories and politics. Um, and he's had his deserved um, end. I think at least he's withdrawn with honour. He's taken political responsibility for the defeat by fully withdrawing from politics rather than hanging around and setting up NGOs like Corbyn or claiming that it was a great kind of victory as Syriza did. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I mean, all in all, at least um, his retirement is um, his retirement at least has been done with, uh, with some honesty. Yeah. Just a, a quick point on, I guess the idea of yuppie populism. I like, I like that formulation. It makes me think of Macron. It's a very, you know, that's, that's the, you get the populist energy and the yuppie sheen. I mean, I guess it's a form of techno populism appealing to the young urban um, professionals. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe maybe that maybe they're not quite that that movement isn't in the ascendancy uh, given the the Spanish results. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to read off what what'll happen to Macron next year from Spanish regional elections. You but, can um, hope, but <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. You know, um, but th- I think there's one other thing which is relevant to pull out from the Madrid election. So uh, Ayuso, uh, who was the uh, Partido Popular candidate in Madrid, ran on a pretty explicit uh, anti-lockdown ticket. Um, Interestingly, in 2019, so before the pandemic, um, Ayuso lost the led the PP to its worst ever result in the region since Spain's transition to democracy. So it's not as if it's been uh, you know continuous success um, for the party in Madrid or for that candidate. And yet now they they um, after the after the the Madrid government collapsed and then you had these new elections, uh, they've obviously had a great success and. You know, lots of the reporting on it, nothing has been explicit saying, you know, basically it was anti-lockdown that won it. Um, but it does seem to be an important ingredient. Uh, and I think the the, the messaging, and I have, a, I have a really good friend who lives in Madrid, Hiya Jack, uh, who uh, was telling me kind of what the, the, the sort of electoral um, propaganda that and literature that they received in the post. And the Pepe's stuff was was really explicit. It was just like freedom in, in big letters. And that was basically it. And the whole message was, uh, this is an election of socialism versus freedom. And then when Iglesias joined the race, she she changed the message to this is of this is between communism and freedom. Um, whereas Podemos on the other uh, side tried to run it as a sort of anti-fascist campaign, and so the the slogan there was democracy versus fascism, uh, and that just flopped. Um, it seems you know it did that that obviously wasn't ex- successful for Podemos, even though they El they won surprise. it. Wow, you yeah. mean, it's wow, not- it's like. So those Another are really the war against really fascism. the options. Great democracy, political genius. Democracy versus fascism or communism versus freedom. It's like, 
Jesus, these these guys should listen to this podcast and and understand all of these false <laughs> yeah. oppositions. Well, and, and apparently, apparently Pessoa's I mean, messaging was terrible as well. I mean, the leaflets that were sent around were just like you know dense text, apparently cribbed from a speech, and so you know no, no clear messaging at all. Um, and this is of course the government, the you know the party that's in government, in central government. So there's an element probably of an anti-incumbency vote. There yeah, as well. though apparently they, I mean, they hammered the unions. I was reading, I can't remember if it was the PP or Vox, but they were hammering the unions for um, declaring, for allowing their representatives' um, jobs to be declared inessential. Um, you know, so the kind of the way in which the unions simply kind of rolled over and accepted all the strictures of the lockdown without seeking really to um, defend any of the interests of um, mm. of their you know of their um, constituents as workers. Apparently, they were hammered for that um, in this uh, in this regional election as well. So, well, we'll see. Just to bring it back to the London elections, we'll see if um, Lawrence Fox or Piers Corbyn gets in on what is primarily an anti-lockdown. Um, well, obviously, they're not going to win, shock. but it'll be interesting. They were not going to win. I mean, it's going to go to Sadiq Khan, unfortunately. But let's. It'd be interesting to see, just as a measure of anti-lockdown sentiment, how much the combined vote for those two figures is. Yeah, no, that'll definitely be interesting to uh, to keep an eye on. Uh, let's move on just, and actually just get, to get... annoy just to annoy George. I think my preferences for Fox over Corbyn, only because Lawrence Fox is committed to defending the statue of Cromwell outside Parliament, unlike oh, his Corbyn. Jesus. So. Uh, yeah, like it's only it's only Wokesters and Phil who care about the statues. Like no everyone else is like, who gives a fuck about statues? No, uh, let's move on to and, uh, yeah. But we, we've talked about this before, and we've talked we've talked about it enough. I think politics without symbols, the utopia of Alex and George. No, it's not me. at all. Just you know, statues are mainly ugly, so I have an aesthetic problem with them. Anyway, let's actually get started with three articles. We have one about uh, staying home and live streaming, one about liberals who can't quit lockdown, and one about uh, a, a potential new commodities super cycle. So well, we're going to read them. We're going to do them in that order. Uh, and the first one is George's. Yeah, thanks. So uh, my article this this time is um, stayed home, live streamed, got the T-shirt, which is from the 30th of April, Conservative Woman, which is um, a, a publication which I... I would imagine that some of our readers don't read. You're the natural target for it, George, obviously. Well, but the reason, other than just to demonstrate uh, (laughs) in a kind of virtue-signing way, the wide... Are you a con-femme, George? You know, a conservative (laughs) femme? A con-femme? I think it's con-wo. Conservative woman. (laughs) But you're not a woman. You're you're a man, so you're a femme-boy or whatever, a (laughs) con-femme. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I haven't I haven't really thought about it. Let me get back to you on that one. Um, but no, so I came I came across it on the safety propaganda Substack, which is a really good list of all of the the, the good and the bad. And this was um, on the uh, well, it was it was on the the, the bad side, but that's just because it was critiquing something which I think is is worth critiquing. Um, and so I'm also a fan of the the, the band um, that is criticised in this particularly the song in Drangada allotment. So check that out, uh, listeners. And um, who the is the band? Wait, wait, wait. Tell us, tell us what the article me. is about first before you. Yeah, yeah, come on. 
Yeah. They're called meat raffle, which is a good idea. It's like, is that a raffle of me or you have a raffle and you win some meat? I mean, all, all these things are possible. And it's by Lev Parker, who's the editor of a surrealist South London publishing house called Morbid Book. So what is the article about? I hear you say, I mean, literally you guys just said that as well. Um, so it's about a t-shirt produced by this South London, nominally kind of anti-establishment band with the slogan, stay home, save the NHS, listen to meat raffle. Uh, in a way that mimics the state slogan, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And I think just what's interesting about this article, short article, um, is just this kind of contradiction at the heart of the contemporary of contemporary kind of political music is that you have these kind of anti, like very explicitly anti-Tory bands who end up reproducing central government messaging. Um, and that's why I thought it was interesting because it kind of like what what it what explains this, the the, um, the um, author draws on this basically the idea of the society of the spectacle by Guy Debord this idea that the society that the artist's desire to change society becomes part of that culture kind of gives it vitality makes it exciting makes it dangerous makes it appear conflictual um and just to wrap it up the the author is quite cutting and says that um artists who legitimize the lockdown regime by live streaming voluntarily because it's about this idea you can just live stream and get the t-shirt rather than go to a gig, which could be dangerous. Um, for it would be a very different story if their livelihoods depended on it. These are successful artists. They they still masquerade as rebels, but they are really Johnson's, quote, bitches, end quote. So, yeah, I just think it was a good, like, a good kind of... It identified something that I think I'd been 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 seeing a little bit, which is how there is that contradiction in some kind of political music around like you're anti-Tory, but there's a Tory message, which is being, which is being amplified here. So what did you guys make of it? It's brilliant. And I think we um, have clearly overlooked the significant contribution of Con Woe to um, uh, the debates that we're interested in at the moment. So no, it's, I mean, it, you know, joking aside, I mean, it's a great piece and it's bang on, I think about the, just the facile character of the oppositionism of these kind of uh, the kind of the cultural left, I suppose. It's a shame, you know, the sleeve. I mean, I don't know about Mead Raffle. Um, he also talks about the Sleaford mods doing the same kind of thing with all of their kind of um, anti-Tory posturing and then um, their inability to think independently when um, a major national question is posed, except to kind of slavishly parrot the line kind of propagated by central government. Um, and I suppose it may, I mean, it, it went a bit further as well because it was suggesting the way in which they've kind of, um, they're compromising, they're not only kind of effectively um, aligning with government and state power, but they're also compromising their own art in the sense that um, the idea that their art can be, um, or their music can be effectively conveyed in the context of live streaming and that they've adapted to it so kind of effectively and smoothly and that they see it as something which is um, uh, kind of uh, now pro-social in a way because it's helping to reinforce the lockdown and save the NHS by staying home and listening to us. I mean, they, you know, they basically, they cut their own legs out from under them. And I thought that point was made well. I mean, I think it's interesting because even if you, you know, thought that lockdown was a good policy, um, that you would still have a more oppositional edge to what you were doing, you know, in being, 
you know, quote unquote punk, even if you're not a punk band specifically, um, have a sort of punk attitude, which would seek to challenge the government on, on whatever grounds it might be. Um, and it, yeah, I think it's interesting that it doesn't really do that other than saying we're anti-Tory, but yeah, as you say, repeating the Tory messaging. And it's funny because that, I mean, I, hate that anti-Tory stuff, not because I think you should be nicer to the Tories, but just because it seems so outdated and it's a relic of the 1980s and early 90s. And I thought it had gone away because with the Tory party's kind of softening and kind of changing its logo to a kind of a green tree and under David Cameron and becoming much more of a kind of social liberal party, um, and also then being out of government for a long time, and then being in coalition with the Lib Dems, it would have kind of softened the the sort of anti-Toryism. And now the fact that they're back in government, um, I think, has maybe given new wind to sort of being, you know, anti-Tory, especially as the Tories seem unvanquishable and kind of with with Labour being unable to get a foothold in, um, that it's given new wind to something which has completely no substance because it's not as if the Labour Party is out there taking a stand, for example, against lockdown or any kind of substantial opposition to... um, to to the government and its policies. So you know what what yeah. does anti-Toryism say? No, I think it. Unfortunately, anybody who's too anti-Tory is a I think is a bit suspicious because you need to leave some anti left over to be anti-Labour. You yeah. be equally uh, anti both of the two of them. Just two two sad bourgeois parties. But um, no, I think the, the I guess what I was thinking is how do you get the so the the critique of of them the Tories is like. It wasn't state failure; it was government failure. This is what Lee said on on a recent episode. That you could seek the Tories, and you say like, basically, the, the Tories are bad. And if Corbyn had been in power, it would have been fine. You know, COVID wouldn't have been a problem. Well, no, that actually that's wrong. It was state failure. So it doesn't matter if Corbyn had been empowered, then we would have had an equally um, terrible response in in this country. So I guess my question is how you get that kind of that kind of state failure messaging into art onto mm. a T shirt. Um, I'm not I'm not sure it's really quite so catchy. That's a really good question, though, because I mean, I've been thinking, I mean, I've, you know, for a year been arguing that like just being pro or anti lockdown, I mean, even in the context of the UK, maybe doesn't capture the the, the full um, kind of state of things in the So, so, you know, you think, yeah, how do you how how do you say fuck them all? Right. How about a purple logo of. I don't know, maybe an Italian politician's face on a shirt. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, I'm yeah. I mean, at least at least that's, yeah. No, but I, I guess the um, that, what's what that what that logo would say is you can't live stream bunga parties. You have to be there yeah, in the in the flesh, as yeah. it were. You know, there's no point doing this remotely. Yeah, because um, the point so, the guy says here, artists to legitimise the lockdown regime by live streaming voluntarily, for it would be a very different story if their livelihood depended on it. Still masquerade as rebels, and I think that's the most cutting point. So, you know, I mean, may, you know, I mean, if you support the lockdown, you know, OK, you know, it's possible to disagree with that. But to actively and enthusiastically endorse it and embrace it and to pretend that you can still be like, um, you know, do your punk thing um, by um, live streaming your music to everyone kind of imprisoned under house arrest at home. I mean, that's just naff ultimately. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make sort of one one final point is that, you know, Obviously, we we've got a, a live stream coming up, but we're the actual radical live streamers because <laughs> we were doing it before lockdown, and we, don't, we all yeah. live in different places. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, and I we hopefully it's... will be doing a, an in real life bunga party um, of some sort. Uh, yeah, well, more on that when we get when we get Believe more me, info. You know, I'd be happy to live stream from Sao Paulo like all the time. But, you know, unfortunately, not all of us can not all of us can be um, with the boys from Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, um, I don't think the boys in Brazil are the boys from Brazil. I think you might want to. Yeah, that's also rewatch true. that film. Um, um, one final thing, just on the Guy Debord aspect of uh, that's brought up in the article. I mean, they say, you know, obviously kind of making things entertaining makes life more livable and therefore is in, in a way complicit with order rather than challenging of it in the way that artists wish. Would then the response be that one should be boring or that one should make try to make life uncomfortable for people? Um, that would probably fall foul of, of certain people's aesthetic taste by by, you know, uh, and fault, you know, would be prey to accusations that, well, you're just making ugly, ugly art and it, you should be doing things which are actually beautiful. So um, I don't know where, where I think, this, in, where to I think in general, you should, you should be not afraid of being boring. I'm not just saying this to defend my kind of personality, <laughs> my, my proclivities, but you shouldn't be afraid of being boring. Like you don't always have to be interesting. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes the aesthetic or the kind of the sheen of radicalism isn't isn't all it's cracked up to be um mm. sometimes you know the the truth the facts are just boring and you just gotta live with that um no i think i think there is a... concerning itself with facts but yeah. <laughs> yeah the best bit of art for me is just like printed out um facts just wikipedia page print that out just the, <laughs> the most number of facts per per kind of square inch that is that is art um no i think my, my my point would be there is there is something here about the current in the current political moment what what is dissent and how is it manufactured um because i think there is a there is a there is a really interesting point here about how the there is a need to to produce particularly in the american context i think produce a kind of census where uh, there is a fundamental consensus um amongst all the the kind of idea producing classes about some fundamental political precepts yeah i i agree i don't know yeah that's a good question uh, something to, to 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 think on a little bit further um how do you get beyond that um speaking of moving beyond uh let's move on to the second piece uh which is uh, my one it's one called the liberals who can't quit lockdown here we're on a similar terrain actually um the stand first says progressive communities who have been home to some of the fiercest battles over COVID-19 policies and some liberal policymakers have left scientific evidence behind. So this article by Emma Green, which came out on May 4th, uh, argues and, and kind of take and does some interviews with people uh, attesting to the fact that liberals who previously at the early part of the lockdown when Trump was still in power, uh, held up the banner of science, of, you know, kind of social responsibility uh, in the face of Trump's, you know, denialism, obstructionism, and so on, um, have now found themselves in some ways uh, not being in line with the science by holding to kind of pandemic combating policies like uh, wearing masks outdoors, uh, not meeting indoors and things like that once they've already been vaccinated. Um, so there's this kind of uh, what's kind of neurotic holding to uh, kind of the individual response responsabilization for pandemic consequences 
way past its sell-by date. So again, even whether you, even if you thought that, uh, you know, whatever you think about certain policies that were adopted at the height of the pandemic, now as the U.S. is moving out, you know, nearly 50% of the population has received its first dose, um, you know, deaths are down and so on, um, that people are still holding obsessively to these policies. Um, and it, one, one interesting point, I think, that is worth pulling out even, uh, which is highlighted by someone that is interviewed in the article um, whose name is, um, excuse me, Gandhi. It was this Gandhi. Whose <laughs> um, name is Gandhi. I mean, it's quite a forgettable name. <laughs> uh, Monica Gandhi uh, is the person... Um, Uh, So, yeah, the person, Monica Gandhi, uh, who's a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, who was, uh, you know, self-identified as very left wing and were um, in favor of of harsh uh, kind of lockdown policies and so on, um, has is now kind of advocating for reopening schools and whatever. And she actually points out that liberals over now current overreaction to COVID and overestimation of uh, of its risks at this stage of, of the pandemic actually ends up um, increasing or, or strengthening uh, vac- vaccine skepticism, right? So if, if people are going, if they were already a bit skeptical of vaccines, these people saying, well, I've already been vaccinated, but I'm still not meeting friends indoors, then what good is the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this curious reversal whereby liberals end up um, strengthening the very anti-science uh, positions which they set out to oppose in the first place. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I think it's a good, it's a good, it's a good piece. I mean, the... Um, the kind of starting point that the very, based on a piece of, of political science research, the very liberal or uh, respondents who would who would identify as very liberal, um, essentially judge COVID to be a greater risk, um, have greater rule following, and not just in the individual sphere, but also imposing on other people's behaviour. I mean, the, the um, I don't I haven't read the original bit of research, but the at least the <clears throat> the summary doesn't attempt to explain this by. The classic political science uh, methodology of saying, "Well, it's because they've got higher education levels." So actually, maybe we should uh, we should take these these claims seriously. Um, but I think the article is good in in sort of elucidating the logic of of that. And I, I'm sure you know we all know people a little bit like this. Um, this kind of framing in terms of individual responsibility, um, a certain really strict rule following on one's own behalf and an imposition of those rules on other people's um, behalf as well. And I guess my simplification here is that this is, you know, this is the politics of the petty bourgeoisie, this kind of anti-Trump hysteria um, rolled over into COVID or in the British context, kind of anti-Brexit uh, hysteria. So there's, there is a real, like there's a- too wealthy and educated to be um, small business owners. Um, though I, you know, petty I bourgeoisie is not just small business owners. They, they've branched out. I accept it's petty bourgeois they've, politics. I they've, just don't they've know diversified. that the people. I don't know that the people it's describing of the wealthy suburbanites, um, very anti-Trump and very liberal and highly educated, are um, you know that segment of the population. But I think, I mean, you know, I agree. It's a very good piece, and particularly because, like you say, it kind of draws out the logic of what's going on. But through interviews with people who are kind of experiencing these struggles in their day-to-day lives of trying to reopen schools, of trying to encourage, um, you know, things to kind of return to normal and the kind of resistance that they're facing, as well as describing the weird kind of bit, um, social media behavior of some of these people um, and their commitment to it. 
as it says, my criticism, I think, would be, if anything, it's too kind, because, you know, the way in which it tries to explain this is like it's people who haven't kind of moved on. It's overzealous kind of anti-Trumpers um, who's still living in 2020. They don't appreciate how much more we understand about COVID transmission now. And, you know, the point being, I suppose, that gradually, you know, they'll come around eventually. And I think what that yeah. leaves out is the fact that they, you know, what it leaves out is the identity aspect of it the benefit that people get from presenting themselves as morally superior by following these rules around health um, that i wouldn't a say this person i wouldn't say it's identity though I, I mean i agree with you that 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 the limitation is saying that these people have left science behind so they went to a certain point with the science and then the science went somewhere else and they continued on the same trajectory um but that was because they never really cared about the science yeah, in exactly. one sense there it was always yeah. a material interest that was forwarded by them i'm not sure about um, material interest but a kind yeah, but of flaunting their superiority and, yeah. yeah i mean and, flaunting their superiority the material interest might be with jeff bezos i don't know that these people you know they don't suffer as much in lockdown perhaps as other people but i don't think they have kind of a direct material interest in lockdown the way that the owners of um of Zoom and Amazon um, and delivery might. So I think, I, I mean- No, this, this I think is a really important point. And this is what really this article made me think about was like what explains like the PMC, everybody hates that term now, but what? But I, I kind of like it. Um, but what explains that, that kind of groups or classes or class fraction or faction or whatever, or like stratum, and what explains their, their kind of really strong embrace of, of certain lockdown rules? I think there is a, I think there is a material interest there and it's, it's probably along the lines of there is a, a certain group who are, who do benefit from certain state transfers or transfers from the the wealthy, the transfer transferiat, or however you might want to put this, who get something from a certain um, de-socializing of 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 some people's jobs. I haven't quite worked this one out yet, but that's the the thing that really. I mean, it's in in Elena Langer's or sorry, Elena Rich. Lang's. Daddy um, Carl piece. isn't going to be unhappy with in, you if you use in, your independent thinking, maybe to like, you know, think about facts creatively and to also kind of analyze facts again. You don't need to squeeze everything into the ideas you were taught just, as an undergraduate. I'm just trying to pay, uh, you know, to reference the things that have influenced my thinking in this area, actually. But yeah, that, that, that idea of the PMC Leviathan, like what explains why the PMC would want to, to organize the state to, to, um, to direct production in a specific direction. And I don't think, I don't think, I think there's something missing in most accounts of uh, most kind of like not lockdown critical, but kind of lockdown skeptical or, or kind of Marxist accounts, which is, is saying like, what, what has meant that there's been, you know, finance capital clearly benefits Bezos capital. He, he's one person, he gets it, but he gets an own, his own description of that sort of capital. Um, they clearly benefit, but what, ha what explains how the servants of capital, the PMC come in and support that? Like, what, what do they get out well, of it? I mean, but it, it's Other a question of status, rewards. right? I mean, it's, but it's a question of status. And I think that can be, that that's motivating enough. I mean, I think that's very important, in fact, uh, and has often motivated politics Even more the important ages. for these people, precisely because, because they don't get so much money out of the exactly, situation. Exactly, because they're not the elite. Virtue they're orders. beneath yeah. that. They're beneath the elite. They're, you know, whatever the 
top 30% of society, but not the top, you know, or maybe the top 10% even, but not the top five not, or top 1%. It's, uh, so it's she describes one guy on Twitter. She describes one guy on Twitter who's always putting up faces of people who've died from COVID on his social media account, you know, and that's obviously very important to him. I don't think Jeff Bezos has to do that in order to um, enhance his kind of profit margins. You know, he can he obviously not. Right. Yeah. But this yeah, guy, no, it's very important to him to mark everyone who's died of COVID and to flaunt his superiority and to write little poems in social media. Yeah, 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 sure. But you can't eat virtue. You need to have some material yeah, but they're not starving, are they? They still got yeah. their delivery drivers and their Amazon delivery men to like bring everything to them. So it's not like you know they don't need to eat virtue because they're fine anyway. And and, and there's also and there's also an element they can work from home. And there's also, I mean, you know, politics doesn't obviously flow directly from material interests. I mean, it's it's mediated. We were actually talking beforehand, and George insisted that everything is mediated. So, um, George, you should take this on board. Uh, that they, I'll take it on board that, with that mediation. Me- that the mediation is that all, even if you're downwardly mobile PMC, you know, to to use the description that's often talked about, um, you are your anxieties might be parlayed into. Um, defensive status even more than it was before because you might be know that you maybe can't get win more can't earn more and and the only way to do that would be through individualistic measures of making yeah, superhuman efforts to enter the elite that that you try to hold on to status even more studies, so. your phd in cultural studies doesn't you know didn't turn out to make you a better you know didn't turn out to do all the things you thought it was going to do for you <laughs> and therefore you know like and you've got well, like, i thought you were talking about george <laughs> Oh, sorry. I think I think it was sufficiently ambiguous if it was <laughs> you as in you, George, or you as in the implied listener. No, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean that about our listeners. I mean the listener to what you were saying. Right. So, um, should we move on to the next uh, to the next piece? Um, something a bit more, as Phil described it, crunchy. Um, so, if we've had the uh, the whipped cream, now is the peanut brittle. Phil, brittle. <laughs> yeah. So this is a thank you, Alex. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, you know, it's a fairly um, straightforward piece, and maybe not the thing that we normally discuss in the three articles. So the title, it's a, it's a, there's, it's a few kind of FT reporters. Four of them. I'm not going to read their names out, but the title of the piece is uh, "Broad Commodities Price Boon Amplifies Supercycle Talk." It was published on May third in the Financial Times. Um, The reason I chose it is just because I thought it was a very useful overview of what's happening with the possibility of um, um, enhanced inflation. And it just kind of is a useful backgrounder on that. And I think it is an interesting topic we're thinking about and is also connected to our other discussion about the kind of consequences of lockdown and so on. And so basically, I mean, it just talks about how the things that might be contributing to a new burst of inflation, the fact that various supply chains have broken down in the course of lockdown around the world, that you have a lot of pent up consumer demand, lots of people are going to be want to be eating out in restaurants, that you have huge stimulus, economic stimulus in the US. Um, and in China, China's economy is expanding massively. And also that you've got like enormous amounts of investment in green technology, which is taking off rare earth minerals needed for electric car batteries and all of that. Um, and so supposedly that all of these things are intersecting to contribute to a so-called super cycle, commodity super cycle, so that primary goods, commodities, inputs, um, metal, timber, foodstuffs, basic kind of inputs into manufacturing processes and basic goods are going to um, 
the prices are all going to go up and it's going to feed into inflation. Um, and the reason this, I th and there's so much chatter about inflation at the moment um, around the place and everyone trying to stake bets on whether or not inflation is going to happen. And I think this is important and interesting for all sorts of reasons. And essentially, I think, because inflation is a proxy for social resistance in a way. And so all these discussions about whether or not inflation will come back, how far it will come back, um, what um, bets on inflation, on whether or not people will be able to control inflation. Um, a lot of it is to do with, it has kind of, uh, or it presupposes the um, common theme to uh, one of our common um, thematics on this podcast, which is uh, the absence of an organized left. So um, let me explain a bit more. So I think it's important to me to realize just how much um, control of inflation was integral to um, the technocratic um, neoliberal institutions that have developed over um, the last 30 years, and in particular, independent central banks. So the whole idea of making um, Alex is just flashing at me 40 years. I was thinking 30 years because the British Central Bank of England was made independent um, after New Labour came to power in the 90s. But the Fed, the US Central Bank, has been um, independent for long. But, no, but not just its independence. I mean, the, the both Thatcher and Reagan governments were, you know, they're, they're one of their main lines of attack was um, trying to reduce inflation, right? So, I mean, yeah. raising and so, raising interest rates and so yeah, on. Yeah, raising so. interest rates was a tool of kind of breaking the organized left um, and getting inflation. That was part of their pitch, their electoral pitch, their political pitch, was getting inflation under control or um, another way for getting wages under control and breaking up breaking up the, um, the capacity of organized labor to um, fight for wages, essentially. So, I mean, that was monetarist, um, foreign um, monetarist policy, which was um, integral to the policies of the Reagan and Thatcher administrations, and the important justification for independent central banks, right? Because the idea was you can't rely on democratically elected governments to control inflation. Because it's too political. Yes, it's too political. They're always going to have incentives around this the massively cycle political thing. It's to too political. Spend, to spend and spend in order to buy voters. And therefore, you need, you know, if you really want to control inflation, you have to kind of make it independent from the electoral cycle. All of which is to say that control of inflation has been central to the justification of um, technocracy. And um, for all the ways in which neoliberal kind of technocracy has been eroded and under assault in the last 10 years or so, under populist assault, one thing, the, the authority of central banks is still um, far more solid than so many of the other kind of institutions of neoliberal technocracy. And if anything, it's been strengthened, in particular with respect to the Fed and the kind of the greater role of the Fed and its coordination with other central banks around the world. Anyway, all of this is to say then, will a return of inflation um, undermine the authority of these institutions? Because um, part of the reason that they're coordinating um, fiscal policy and monetary policy at the moment is the, um, is the notion that the... Um, that uh, this, the Fed is taking a bet that inflation isn't going to come back. And um, so the big question is whether in, you know whether there will be inflation as a result of the super cycle um, trends that we that I mentioned before. So here's my bet for um, for for Banga listeners anyway, and I'll explain it a bit more. I mean, hopefully that's helped to set the scene for my thinking. But my bet is that there will not be sustained inflation. 
Um, and the reason is because there is no organized labor movement. So I'm sure there will be a, pro- a spike in prices, and it's already evident to anyone who's been out to take. Look, uh, don't 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 give them the explanation. Like the we need a two hundred dollar kind of financial services rogue listener tier and then they get the insight and the explanation well so maybe, maybe this will be the justification for opening up the tier afterwards but there will be no there will be no sustained inflation because there's no um there's no capacity to institutionalize inflation so to institutionalize inflation you need an organized labor movement that is willing to resist downward pressure on its constituents wages and also that's willing to fight for um enhanced wages to make up for price spikes, to make up for inflation in food and fuel and so on. And so where, I mean, there will obviously be um, a spike to prices and there will be some inflation off the back of the trends that I've discussed. And like I say, this will be evident to anyone who's been taking advantage of being outside of lockdown. I've noticed, I mean, astonishing prices for pints and beers um, in England since um, lockdown started to ease up a bit. Um, so there will be a spike, right? The question is, though, how big and will it endure? And my, I'm saying it won't okay. because of the absence of an organized labor movement. So, I mean, I think one thing about the, I guess, the technocratic aspect, which is to say, you know, central bank independence first and foremost, I think just in terms of the history of it, it's important, I think, as you note, it was instituted by the labor gov- new labor government. And in a way, it's more about ruling the void rather than creating the void, or rather to say there was first the neoliberal onslaught of breaking the back of organized labor, and then there were these measures to prevent labor or popular or economic populism from ever coming back again. So I think it's a kind of the second phase of kind of making sure that, or put it this way, the neoliberal, the the technocratic aspect of neoliberalism is is, is kind of um, governing the raised earth that uh, that has occurred, you know, after the neoliberal onslaught initially. Governing um, the raised earth. What the hell is that? Well, mean? you know, but you basically you, you destroy the city first and then you govern it. Right. And so that's what's happened um, rather than rather than the technocracy being implicit in the in the kind of offensive phase of the battle. Right. Um, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, it's easier, easier to govern that way. Yeah. And I think, in fact, it's important because it was explicitly politicized. So Thatcher was explicitly political rather yeah. than technocratic. Yeah. And it was, in fact, new labor that institutionalized, like you say, the technocracy once um, Thatcher had kind of um, after the Thatcher victory. I mean, I yeah. also wanted to come on to the specifics of, of the article, because, of course, the article isn't about, I mean, inflation. It's obviously about uh, rise in commodity prices, which, you know, could lead to inflation, though it seems um, you know, I mean, in this case, it seems to be a, a lot of pent up demand, which is now being released. Um, and it's interesting. I heard Adam Tooze talking on a, on another podcast. You feel Bloom- strongly about it. Tell us more. The Bloomberg uh, Odd Lots one, which is actually really good on on kind of market stuff. Um, <laughs> George is singly, signaling me. No, uh, we shouldn't uh, plug other podcasts. No, no forget, other forget podcast I said exists. That then. No other podcasts exist. Right. Um, but him, I get added out when I do. Adam Tooze saying. Who's, who's writing a book on on actually on the kind of the great shutdown, as he calls it, um, which uh, he points out that we've basically had a full business cycle in the space of a year, like super com- compressed. So we've had the crash and now we're going to kind of have this post-pandemic boom, at least for some people. Um, you know, obviously there's talk of the kind of K-shaped recovery in which, in which uh, you know, certain assets um, and certain people do very well and the rest of us don't. Um, but uh, but I think it's interesting how much excess demand there is, and that there, in some ways, there's not enough supply. But also that the demand is coming from from China, which this points out. 
uh, sorry, that the commodity super cycle in, in the 2000s, uh, from which, you know, for example, Latin American countries and the BRICS in general benefited greatly, was a lot of demand driven by China. And here it's coming from kind of all over the place, it seems. And that's quite different. Um, yeah. And I think it's so I'm, I'm saying that just to draw attention to the fact that we need to mediate between that happening and what Phil was saying about inflation, which, you know, up until the 70s was driven by rising wages and rising demands from the from the from on the state. Well, it wasn't driven by rising things. wages, but the fact is it was institutionalized by it. So I mean you have the OPEC oil shock, right? There's a huge yeah. spike to prices. But it's an organized labor movement seeking to defend wages. That means it becomes kind of institutionalized in the um economic yeah. Where, yeah, where uh, wages have to keep capitalist keep, countries keep pace with prices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So just, just, just a, I guess, quite a basic point is that all of this stuff that Phil has been saying about the uh, the role of organised labour is, is not included in the the article itself. Um, and I think, I think there's a, you know, there is a fairly solid logic for there are going to be these causes of increased commodity demand. China post COVID recovery and plans to green the world economy. You have these big stimulus packages these kind of you know there's a lot of money you know sloshing around the 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 troughs of international finance and this is going to particularly impact on some commodities some things which are involved in the production of catalytic converters um, electric vehicles for example Um, and that is a you know that is a fairly solid that is a fairly solid you know logic there's going to be a lot of infrastructure spending and green infrastructure spending requires copper so the price of copper is going to go up. Um, but what I think is the limitation of this article is that it doesn't really sort of look at the political aspects of this. Well, I mean, but it's just a basic the, FT article. I mean, you know, you couldn't, it's not like a long kind of in-depth um, essay or something, which they do do sometimes. I suppose I just took it as an example of there is a lot of chatter about inflation and who is going to make the right bet on inflation and also whether or not um, the Fed in particular has the credibility to control inflation. Um, because will they, yeah. the point is, can they raise, can they credibly threaten to raise interest rates in order to control inflation? But that's, um, that's the point, right? That, did, is, that it is, it, it is a, you have, you have uh, credible central banks, you have yeah. very disorganized this is the point. They, labor. They, they so aren't credible have... anymore. I mean, the question, because they've eroded so much of their credibility and the fact that they are so prominent now and that they've assumed so much kind of de facto authority in our um, kind of post-COVID, post-2008 world, do they really have the credibility anymore to claim that they will raise interest rates? Because if they did, the consequences could be extremely economically damaging and also damaging to their legitimacy as well. So the point is that the, you know, the basis on which um, the claim for their um, independence has been made for so long um, is, you know, perhaps it's gone Um, because it's very difficult to imagine anyone is going to be willing to raise interest rates. This is what's missing, right? Is is anybody arguing for or an, an actual example of this happening? A kind of repoliticization of of monetary policy, a kind of you know a a, 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 demo, yeah. a democratizing of so the central bank. So that's not strictly true. And if true. that happens, that's I mean, not strictly true. So yeah. the MMTers are, in exactly. fact, they are the ones who occupy that space, and in particular, um, the movement for um, 
for Italy exit um very small kind of anti-euro anti-euro zone anti-eu party um which included a friend of the pod who's been on the pod before Thomas Fatsi who's a leading member of it and we've talked about this before but yes i mean there is a very small kind of political group and a fairly large and perhaps increasingly influential kind of economic theory um which um aims to politicize monetary policy but the no, point and, is and, and the Biden, is and the Biden government has done it i mean that's that's the thing exactly. the more significant thing the exactly. Biden government is doing it so it's not as if it's not is, being politicized it's just not being yeah. politicized in the way that we wanted to so this is, I suppose, the other point I wanted to make is that everyone is talking about inflation at the moment. So I wanted to kind of bring it to the attention of our listeners, and I'm sure they probably encountered it somewhere. I think in a way it kind of the talk of inflation is covering up the absence of so much else in our contemporary kind of politics and political economy. And part of the chatter about inflation and the kind of the specter of, you know, haunted by the specter of inflation, if you will, is that um, what it really is about is, like I say, kind of a proxy for social resistance. Will there be any social resistance? Will there be any, is there any um, political force out there that is capable of um, responding to these kinds of social and economic pressures? And, you know, there isn't, but I think the kind of chatter about inflation is a specter. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this, 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 of course, is, you know, one of the big, the big questions, can inflation be politicized? Um, what does it actually mean? How is it redistributive? Um, but I did, I did want to make one point to any, any of our listeners who are, who are um, settlers of Catan fans, because it talks about iron ore and grain prices increasing. I mean, if the price of, of, uh, I really hope we don't as well, <laughs> then, then that is a development card, which is more expensive than it otherwise was. So you might want to adjust. Just your, to stress, not all of us are settlers of Catan <laughs> fans. I think, in fact, only George is settler of Catan fan. Don't be embarrassed, listeners. Most of our listeners aren't settlers of Catan, like because obviously we have lives and we're not hipsters. And so but this I think, is good. We I think can, actually can... the Green Bay Packers used to play this uh, play this game. That's a sports team, Phil. Um, just um, this is good. We, we cover all bases here. Um, you can be cool Baseball or you can be reference. a geek and, and life out like Alpha Bunga Bunga. So, you know, um, all welcome. Um, maybe we should leave this here. But it literally uh, does talk iron ore and grain. And that's okay, like that George. just made me think of okay. a development card. OK. And just to say, if you want to dig a little bit more deeply into this question of inflation, we discussed it in uh, three articles from a year ago. Uh, number 124, it was uh, came out in May of 2020, in which we dealt with an article by Adam Tooze called The Death of the Central Bank Myth, in which Tooze looks at how the central banks have been very successful in combating inflation and thereby also re uh, repressing wages, um, and it, how now all kind of central bankers and uh, thinkers about monetary policy are trying to think about how to re-stimulate inflation. So that's really good backdrop uh, to this. And there's also, um, we did also a discussion with Thomas Fazzi, the Italian politician, um, MNTR, that I mentioned uh, before, and that's episode 38 called The Economics of Exit. So um, regarding the Eurozone, um, which is- Just think, just think how much that episode would be worth today. Oh. 38. <laughs> <laughs> you just did that joke though. Yeah, I'm just going to do it again because okay. it, it, I might not have landed it the first time and it's just so yeah. clever. Just keep, just keep repeating. Good. All right, that's it from us for now. Uh, come back to us on any of this if you, if you like to. And of course, we'll discuss it at the next Alpha Bonus Bonus. That's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Hello, listener. Alex here. Sorry to interrupt, but we've got some very exciting news to tell you. That's right. BungaCast is pregnant. The end of the end of history is soon here. 
The book, co-written by the three hosts of this podcast, will be out on the 25th of June. The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, is our attempt to synthesize the discussions we've been having on this podcast for the past four years, and to advance an argument as to how and why the deadening end of history period had to end, and to look forward to what comes next. In it, we describe what the end of history felt like, and why what we're now experiencing is such a huge rupture. The hysteria of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, the rise and fall of the left populism of Bernie or Corbyn, multiple varieties of angry anti-politics around the world, the new culture wars and mass protests, these are all facets of our new time. We also look at how new ideologies are emerging under the impact of the pandemic, which are set to rule the world for the next decade. And of course, our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi, makes a big appearance. Understand his biography and his way of doing politics, and you understand the past 30 years. The book's available to pre-order now. Go to bungacast.com book, where there's direct links to your favorite bookseller. Happy reading. We really do hope you enjoy it. Mm-hmm.